Chapter One of In the Clutch of the War God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Ballas. In the Clutch of the War God by Milo Hastings. The Tale of the Orient's Invasion of the Occident, as chronicled in the Humaniculture Society's History of the Twentieth Century in three parts from physical culture magazine july to september nineteen hundred eleven part one forward in this strange story of another day the author has dipped into the future and viewed with his mind's eye the ultimate effect of america's self-satisfied complacency and her persistent refusal to heed the lessons of oriental progress I can safely promise the reader who takes up this unique recital of the twentieth-century warfare that his interest will be sustained to the very end by the interesting deductions and the keen insight into the possibilities of the present trend of international affairs exhibited by the author Bernard McFadden. Kindly be prepared to absent yourself at a moment's notice it was goyou speaking blundering old fool he was standing in the doorway with his kitchen apron on and an iron spoon in his hand what on earth is the matter asked ethel calvert tossing aside her french novel in alarm for such a lack of deference in goyou meant vastly more than appeared upon the surface i am informed replied goyou gravely that there has been an anti-foreign riot and that many are killed and father gasped ethel he was upon the grain boat said goyou but where is he now i do not know returned goyou looking nervously over his shoulder but i fear he has not fared well the boat was dynamited that's what started the trouble with a gasp, Ethel recalled that an hour before she had heard an explosion which she had supposed to be blasting. Faint with fear, she staggered toward a couch and fell forward upon the cushions. When the girl regained consciousness, the house was dark. Slowly she recalled the event that had culminated the eventful day. She wondered if Goyu had been lying or had gone crazy the darkness was not reassuring her father always came home before dark and his absence now confirmed her fears she wondered if the old servant had deserted her he was a poor stick anyway japanese men who had pride or character no longer worked as domestics in the household of foreigners ethel calvert was the daughter of an american grain merchant who represented the interests of the north american grain exporters association at the seaport of otaru in tokaidi the north island of japan three years before her mother had died of homesickness and a broken heart although the japanese physician had called it tuberculosis and had prescribed life in a tent had they not suffered discomforts enough in that barbarous country without adding insult to injury ethel was bountifully possessed of the qualities of hot-house beauty 
her jet-black hair hung over the snowy skin of her temples in striking contrast her form was of a delicate slenderness and her movement easy and graceful with just a little of that languid listlessness considered as a mark of well-bred femininity she knew that she was beautiful according to the standards of her own people and her isolation from the swirl of the world's social life was to her gall and wormwood the calverts had never really settled in japan but had merely remained there as homesick americans indifferent to or unjustly prejudiced against the japanese life about them now in the year nineteen fifty eight the growing anti-foreign feeling among the japanese had added to their isolation moreover the japanese bore the grain merchant an especial dislike for every patriotic japanese was sore at heart over the fact that after a century of modern progress japan was still forced to depend upon foreigners to supplement their food supply in fact they had oft heard professor oshima grieve over the statistics of grain importation as a speculator might mourn his personal losses in the stock market for a time ethel lay still and listened to the faint sound of voices from a neighbouring porch then the growing horror of the situation came over her with renewed force if her father was dead she was not only alone in the world but stranded in a foreign and an unfriendly country for there were but few americans left in the city the girl arose and crept nervously into the dining-room she turned on the electric light everything seemed in order she hurried over to goyu's room and knocked there was no answer then slowly opening the door she peered in the room was empty and disordered plainly the occupant had bundled together his few belongings and flown ethel stole back through the silent house and tremblingly took down the telephone receiver in vain she called the numbers of the few american families of the city last on the list was the american consulate and this time she received the curt information that the consul had left the city by aeroplane with the other foreigners the phrase struck terror into her heart if the european population had flown in such haste as to overlook her clearly there was danger a great fear grew upon her afraid to remain where she was she tried to think of ways of escape she could not steer an aeroplane even if she were able to obtain one otaru was far from the common ways of international traffic and the ships lying at anchor in the harbour were freighters japanese owned and japanese manned ethel looked at her watch it was nine-twenty she tiptoed to her room an hour later she was in the street dressed in a tailored suit of american make and carrying in her handbag a few trinkets and valuables she had found in the house passing hurriedly through quiet avenues she was soon in the open country the road she followed was familiar to her as she had travelled it many times by auto for hours she walked rapidly on her unpractised muscles grew tired and her feet jammed forward in high-heeled shoes were blistered and sore but fear lent courage and as the first rays of the morning sun peeked over the hilltops 
the refugee reached the outskirts of the city of Sapporo. Ethel made straight way for the residence of Professor Oshima, the soil chemist of the Imperial Agricultural College of Hokkaido, a Japanese gentleman who had been educated and who had married abroad, and a close friend of her father's. As she reached the door of the professor's bungalow, she pushed the bell and sank, exhausted, upon the stoop. Some time afterward she half dreamed and half realized that she found herself neatly tucked between white silk sheets and lying on a floor mattress of a Japanese sleeping porch. A gentle breeze fanned her face through the lattice-work, and low slanting sunbeams sifting in between the shutters fell in rounded blotches upon the opposite straw matting wall. For a time she lay musing and again fell asleep. When she next awakened, the room was dimly lighted by a little glowing electric bulb, and Madame Oshima was sitting near her. Her hostess greeted her cordially, and offered her water and some fresh fruit. Madame Oshima was fully posted upon the riots, and confirmed Ethel's fears as to the fate of her father. "'You will be safe here for the present.' her hostess assured her professor oshima has been called to tokyo when he returns we will see what can be done concerning your embarking for america madame oshima was of french descent but had fully adopted japanese customs and ways of thinking as soon as ethel was up and about her hostess suggested that she exchange her american-made clothing for the japanese costume of the time but ethel was inclined to rebel why she protested if i discarded my corsets i would lose my figure but if i lost my figure inquired the lithe madame oshima striking an attitude to this ethel did not reply but continued and i would look like a man for among the japanese people tight-belted waists and flopping skirts had long since been replaced by the kimo a single-piece garment worn by both sexes and which fitted the entire body with comfortable snugness and is a man so ill-looking asked her companion smiling why no of course not only he's different why i couldn't wear a kimo people would see my limbs stammered the properly bred american girl why no they couldn't replied madame oshima not if you keep your kimo on but they would see my figure well i thought you just said that was what you were afraid they wouldn't see but i don't mean that way they they could see the shape of my my legs said ethel blushing crimson are you ashamed that your body has such vulgar parts returned the older woman no of course not said ethel choking back her embarrassment but it's wicked for a girl to let men know such things oh they all know it replied madame oshima they learn it in school at this the highly strong ethel burst into sobs there there now said her companion regretting that she had spoken sarcastically i forget that i once had such ideas also we'll talk some more about it after a while you are nervous and worried now and must have more rest the next day madame oshima more tactfully approached 
the subject and showed her protege that while in rome it was more modest to do as the romans do and that moreover it was necessary for her own good and theirs that she attract as little attention as possible and to those that recognized her caucasian blood appear superficially at least as a naturalized citizen of japan so amid blushes and tears protestations and laughter ethel accepted the kimo or one-piece japanese garment and the outer flowing cloak to be worn on state occasions when freedom of bodily movement was not required her feather-adorned hat was discarded altogether and her ill-shapen high-heeled boots replaced by airy slippers of braided fibre her rather short stature and her hair which fortunately enough was black served to lessen her conspicuousness especially when dressed in the fashion followed by japanese girls and with the leaving off of the use of cosmetics and the spending of several hours a day in the flower-garden even her pallid complexion suffered rapid change it was about a fortnight before professor oshima returned from tokyo upon his arrival ethel at once pleaded with him to be sent to america but the scientist slowly shook his head it is too late he said there's going to be a war thus it happened that ethel calvert was retained in the professor's family as a sort of english tutor to his children and introduced as a relative of his wife and no one suspected that she was one of the hated americans the trouble between japan and the united states dated back to the early part of the century it was deep-seated and bitter and not only the culmination of a rivalry between the leading nations of the great races of mankind but a rivalry between two great ideas or policies that grew out in opposite directions from the age of unprecedented mechanical and scientific progress that marked the dawn of the twentieth century the pages of history had been turned rapidly in those years the united states long known as the richest country had also become the most populous nation of the caucasian world and wealth and population had made her vain but with all her material glory there was not strength in american sinews nor endurance in her lungs nor vigor in the product of her loins her people were herded together in great cities where they slept in gigantic apartment houses like mud swallows in a sand-bank they overate of artificial food that was made in great factories they overdressed with tight-fitting unsanitary clothing made by the sweated labor of the diseased and destitute they overdrank of old liquors born of ancient ignorance and of new concoctions born of prostituted science they smoked and perfumed and doped with chemicals and cosmetics the supposed virtues of which were blazoned forth on earth and sky day and night the wealth of the united states was enormous yet it was chiefly in the hands of the few the laborers went forth from their rookeries by subway and monorail and served their ships in the mills of industry in turn others took their places and the mills ground night and day 
even the farmlands had been largely taken over by corporate control crops on the plains were planted with power machinery the rough lands had all been converted into forests or game preserves for the rich agriculture had been developed as a science but not as a husbandry the forcing system had been generally applied to plants and animals wonder-working nitrogenous fertilizers made at niagara and by the wave motors of the coast made all vegetation to grow with artificial luxury corn-fed hogs and the rotund carcasses of stall-fed cattle were produced on mammoth ranches for the edification of mankind and fowl were hatched by the billions in huge incubators and the chicks reared and slaughtered with scarcely a touch of a human hand and all this was under the control of concentrated business organization the old sturdy wasteful farmer class had gone out of existence only the rich who owned aeroplanes could afford to live in the country the poor had been forced to the cities where they could be sheltered en masse and fed as it were by machinery new york had a population of twenty-three millions manhattan island had been extended by filling in the shallows of the bay until the battery reached almost to staten island the aeroplane stations that topped her skyscrapers stood many of them a quarter of a mile from the ground as the materially greatest nation in the world the united states had an enormous national patriotism based on vanity the larger patriotism for humanity was only known in the prattle of her preachers and idealists america was the land of liberty and liberty had come to mean the right to disregard the rights of others in japan too there had been changes but japan had received the gifts of science in a far different spirit with her science had been made to serve the more ultimate needs of the race rather than the insane demand for luxuries the japanese had applied to the human species the scientific principles of heredity nutrition and physical development which in america had been confined to plants and animals the old spirit of japanese patriotism had grown into a semi-religious worship of racial fitness and a moral pride developed which eulogized the sacrifice of the liberties of the individual to the larger needs of the people legal restrictions on the follies of fashion in dress and food the prohibition of alcohol and narcotics the restriction of unwise marriages and the punishments of immorality were stoically accepted not as the blue laws of religious fanaticism but as requisites of racial progress and a mark of patriotism and while japan showed no signs of the extravagant wealth seen in america she was far from being poor she had gained little from centralized and artificial industry but she had wasted less in insane competition and riotous luxury but in japanese life there was one unsolved problem that was her food supply intensive culture would do wonders and the just administration of wealth and the physical efficiency of her people had eliminated the waste of supporting the non-productive but an acre is but a small piece of land at most 
and japan had long since passed the point where the number of her people exceeded the number of her acres a quarter of an acre would produce enough grain and coarse vegetables to keep a man alive but the japanese wanted eggs and fruit and milk for their children and they wanted cherry trees and chrysanthemums lotus ponds and shady gardens with little waterfalls now if the low birth-rate that had resulted when the examinations for parenthood were first enforced had continued japan would not have been so crowded but after the first generation of marriage restriction the percentage of those who reached the legal standard of fitness was naturally increased the scientists and officials had from time to time considered the advisability of increasing the restrictions and yet why should they the japanese people had submitted to the prohibition of the marriage of the unfit but they loved children and with their virile outdoor life the instinct of procreation was strong within them true the assignable lands in japan continued to grow smaller but what reason was there for stifling the reproductive instincts of a vigorous people in a great unused world half populated by a degenerate humanity so japan was land-hungry not for lands to conquer as of old nor yet for lands to exploit commercially but for food and soil and breathing space for her children among opponents of japanese racial expansion the united states was the greatest offender japanese immigration had long since been forbidden by the united states and american diplomats had more recently been instrumental in bringing about an agreement among the powers of europe by which all outlets were locked against the overflowing stream of asiatic population indeed america called japan the yellow peril and with her own prejudices to maintain her institutions of graft and exploitations to fatten her luxury-loving lords and her laborers to appease she was in mortal terror of the simple efficiency of the japanese people who had taken the laws of nature into their own hands and shaped human evolution by human reason as commodore perry had forced the open door of commerce upon japan a century before so japan decided to force upon america the acknowledgment of any human being's right to live in any land on earth she had tried first by peaceful means to secure these ends but failing here and driven on by the lash of her own necessity japan had come to feel that force alone could break the clannish resistance of the anglo-saxon who having gone into the four corners of the earth and forced upon the world his language commerce and customs now refused to receive ideas or citizens in return and thus it came to pass that the west and the east were in the clutch of the war-god no one knew just what the war would be like for the wars of the last century had been bluffing bulldozing affairs concerning trade agreements or latin american revolutions there had been no great clash of great ideas and great peoples the harbors of the world were filled with huge floating flat-topped battleships within the capacious interiors of which were packed the parts of aeroplanes as were the soldiers of the grecian army in their wooden horse at troy for assembling and launching them 
but the engines of warfare which men had repeatedly claimed would make war so terrible as to end war had failed to fulfil anticipations the means of defence and the rules of the game had kept pace with the means of destruction the flat tops of the warships which served as alighting platforms for friendly planes were heavily armoured against missiles dropped from unfriendly ones the explosion of a bomb on top of a plate of steel is a rather tame affair and guns sufficient to penetrate armour plate could not be carried on aircraft the big guns of battleships which had for a time grown bigger and bigger had now gone quite out of use for the coming of the armoured top had been followed by the toadstool warship which had a roof like an inverted saucer and was provided with water chambers the opening of the traps of which caused a sudden sinking of the vessel under the eave dipped beneath the water level and left exposed only the sloping roof from which the heaviest shot would glance like a bullet from the frozen surface of a pond the first two years of war dragged on in the pacific american grain was of course cut off from japan and the government authorities ordered the people to plough up their flower gardens and plant food crops the americans had too much territory to protect to take the offensive and their pacific fleet lay close to manila where with the help of land aviation forces they hoped to hold the possession of the islands which according to the popular american view was supposed to be the prize for which the japanese had gone to war the test of the actual warfare proved several things upon which mankind had long been in doubt one of these was that with all the expert mechanism that science and invention had supplied the personal equation of the man could not be eliminated aviation increased the human element in warfare to shoot straight requires calm nerves but to fly straight requires also agility and endurance the american aeroplanes were made of steel and aluminum and when they hit the water they sank like lead but the japanese planes were made of silk and bamboo and their engines were built with multiple compartment air tanks and after a battle the japanese picked up the floating engines and placed them ready to use in inexpensive new planes in the nineteenth month of the war manila surrendered and the emblem of the rising sun was hoisted throughout the philippine islands the remnant of the american fleet retreated across the pacific and the world supposed that the war was over but japan refused the american proposals of peace which conceded them the philippines unless the united states be also opened to universal immigration and so it was that when japan in addition to accepting the philippines demanded the right to settle her cheap labor in the united states the american authorities cut short the peace negotiation and began concentrating troops and battleships along the pacific coast in fear of an invasion of california with ethel calvert's adoption into professor oshima's family there came a great change in her life at first she accepted japanese food and japanese clothes as the old-time prisoner accepted stripes and bread and water but her captivity proved less repulsive than she expected and she was soon confessing to herself that there was much good in japanese life 
professor and madame oshima were not talkative on general topics but the books on the shelves of the professor's library proved a godsend to the awakening mind of the young woman indeed after a mental diet of french and english fiction upon which ethel had been reared the works on science and humaniculture the dreams of universal brotherhood the epics of a race in its conquests of disease and poverty were as meat and drink to her eager hungry mind as the war went on the horror of it all grew upon her she read hauke's america she didn't believe it all but she realized that most of it was true she wondered why her people were fighting to keep out the japanese she marvelled that the japanese who had adopted such lofty ideals of race culture could find the heart to go to war she wished she might be free to go to the government officials at tokyo and washington to show them the folly of it all surely if the american statesmen understood japanese ideals and the superiority of their habits and customs for the production of happy human beings they would never have waged war to keep them out of the states in three days we leave japan said professor oshima as he sat down to dinner one evening in the early part of april nineteen sixty all asked komaru the professor's secretary we four replied oshima indicating those at the table the children will stay with my mother i'll need your assistance and as for miss ethel she cannot well stay here so i have had you two listed although it's a little irregular i am sure it will not be questioned for i know more about american soils than any other man in japan ethel glanced apprehensively at komoru she had never quite understood her own attitude toward that taciturn young japanese whom she had seen daily for two years without hardly making his acquaintance she admired him and yet she feared him professor oshima was saying that she had been listed with komaru for some great journey what did it mean what could she do again she looked up at the secretary but far from seeing any trace of scheme or plot in his enigmatical countenance she found him to be considering the situation with the same equanimity with which he would have recorded the calcium content of a soil sample as for professor and madame oshima they seemed equally unruffled about the proposed journey and not at all inclined to elucidate the mystery experience had taught the younger woman that when information was not offered it was unwise to ask questions so when the professor busied himself with much ransacking of his pamphlets and papers and his wife became equally occupied with overhauling the family wardrobe and getting the children off to their grandmothers ethel accepted unquestionably the statement that she would be limited to twenty kilograms of clothing and ten kilograms of other personal effects and lent assistance as best she could to the enterprise in hand on the third day the little party with their light luggage boarded a train for hakodate at which point they arrived at noon hurrying along the docks among others burdened like themselves they came to a great low-lying turtle-topped warship and passing down a gangway entered the brilliantly lighted interior the constant flood of new passengers came not in mixed and motley groups as the ordinary crowd of passengers 
but by two male and female as the unclean beasts into the ark and they were all young in years and athletic in frame the very cream and flower of the race late that evening the vessel steamed out of port and during the next two days was joined by a host of other warcraft and the great squadron moved in orderly procession to the eastward one point that ethel soon discovered was that in addition to being excellent physical specimens all the men and many of the women were proficient as aviators of these facts life on board bore ample evidence for the great fan-ventilated gymnasium was the most conspicuous part of the ship's equipment and here in regular drills and in free-willed disportive exercise those on board kept themselves from stagnation during the idleness of the voyage into this gymnasium work ethel entered with great gusto for there was a revelation in the discovery of her own physical capabilities that surprised and fascinated her in the other chief interest of her fellow-passengers ethel was an apt pupil for though woefully ignorant of aviation she was eager to learn she spent many hours in the company of professor or madame oshima studying aeroplane construction and operation from the displayed mechanisms on board in fact they found the great roomy hold of the ship was packed with aeroplane parts small gasoline turbines were stored in crates by the hundreds also wings and rudders knocked down and laid flat against each other and still lower down in the framework of the floating palace were vast stores of gasoline at the end of two weeks the japanese squadron was in latitude thirty four degrees north longitude one hundred twenty five degrees west and headed directly for the los angeles district of southern california the richest and most densely populated area of the united states one evening just at dark after they had been in sight of the american aerial scouts all day the japanese fleet changed its course and turned sharply to the southward now panama was six days steaming from los angeles and less than three days from new orleans so the authorities at washington ordered all warships and available soldiers on the gulf coast to embark for the isthmus meanwhile there was much going on beneath the armor plate of the japanese transports and on the fourth day of their southward movement the great trap-doors were swung open and aeroplane parts were run out on the tramways the planes rapidly set up by skilled workmen and firmly hooked to the floor above and below deck they stood in great rows like lines of automobiles in a garage towards sundown the forward planes were manned and in quick succession shot down the runways and took to the air ethel and her companions were below at the time and hardly knew what was going on their luggage had been taken up some time ago except for an extra chemo which they had been ordered to put on in their turn they were now called out and ordered to go above that is the names of the men were called and ethel knew that she was listed as madame komoru a thing that made her shiver every time it was brought to her attention an exclamation or astonishment escaped the lips of the more impulsive american girl as she came on deck for as far as the eye could see the gray flat tops of the war vessels were covered with the drab winged planes while every few seconds a plane shot into the air 
and joined an endless winged line that stretched away to the northeast komaru eighty five oshima eighty six the intent of that command was clear and ethel was soon settled immediately behind the young secretary in the little bamboo car of a japanese plane of war the propellers started with a shrill musical hum they raced down the runway dipped for a second toward the water rose and sailed swiftly up and on toward the dark line of mexico that lay in the evening shadow cast by the curved surface of the pacific ocean end of chapter one